book of 1 Corinthians. We last week kind of gave a broad overview of it. Now we're going to begin walking through the text of the sermon series, the, the beautiful, messy bride of Christ. Today we're in the first nine verses, and let's read those first, and then we'll dig into it together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And this is what we read. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. This is the word of God. Father, would you see fit to join us now as we open up the words of life? Would you give us understanding? Would you direct and guide and give us a sense that we serve a faithful God and we have a high calling? And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's really what I hope you leave with today are those two things. You have a faithful God. If you are somebody who has been engrafted into Christ, you're part of the church, your God is faithful. And furthermore, you have a high calling. This is an amazing thing that you've been called into. Faithful God, high calling. And actually, I would suggest that, that those two concepts address kind of the basic issues that everybody has, no matter who you are walking through the doors today. Every single person who comes in here asks at some point or another, why am I here? You know, what, what, what is really going on? What, what's my purpose? You know, where do I fit into everything that's happening around me? Those are just basic questions that at some point in life you're going to ask. You may not think about it all the time, but in one way or another, if you experience something called peer pressure, those are the reasons why you experience that. If you have conflict about, am I doing the job I'm supposed to do, that's why you feel that way, or am I living where I'm supposed to live, those all happen because of basic questions that are frankly answered right here in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. Uh, most scholars think this is one of Paul's first letters, uh, just after the Thessalonian letters. So he's kind of new in his letter writing, not new in ministry. This church was established back in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey. And you saw last week he spent a year and a half with these individuals. And then three years later, we have this letter where he's addressing some of the issues that have arisen in this new church. So this is early on in Paul's 
letter writing, but the theology that he's going to carry throughout all of his letters is right here in the introduction. It's a standard introduction for letter writing of the day. You always offer greetings. You say who you are, who it's going to, uh, offer greetings and thanks. But when you have Christ in your life, a typical greeting is no longer typical. And typical thanks are no longer typical for Paul. Everything changed when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And now a greeting isn't just, hey, how you doing? It's an opportunity to show them the grace of God at work in their lives. And to explore the dimensions of that reality. Am I? Hello. Hey, what, what is my role and how does this all fit together? Those are some of the key questions here. You know, generations come and generations go. I'm thinking of Psalm 90, which is the only psalm that Moses wrote where he contrasts man and God. And God has been there from generation to generation. And we just kind of crop up. We're there for a little while, then we're gone. But he remains always the same. Although we change, God endures forever. And that God, who Moses looked back to and Paul met on the Damascus Road, calls people to himself. In verse 1, we see he calls Paul. Uh, he says he's called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so Paul looks at his role in life as somebody who's been called to do something in particular. Now, he calls himself an apostle and by definition, apostles in this era were those who had seen the resurrected Christ. And so Paul fits in that group of individuals. And that's the lens through which he looks at all of his life. And he'll talk about what it means to be an apostle later in the book and why that's important to him. So there's a specific calling, but as we'll see, there's a broader calling that each of us have as well. This Sosthenes he mentioned might have been the synagogue ruler back in Acts chapter 18. We don't know for sure, but we do know that in verse 2, he begins talking about who he's writing to, and it's extremely significant. He says, I am writing to the church of God in Corinth. That's interesting. One church. It's actually in the singular. I'm writing to the ecclesia, the called out ones, singular in Corinth, but we know that there was more than one church gathering in Corinth, that there were multiple house churches that existed because there's going to be some divisions among them. So right from the beginning, what he wants to say is this talk about division is foolishness. You're one church. He's writing to one church in all of Corinth, the entire city. He's not the only person who does that. Remember, in the book of Revelation, there are some churches written by John to the church in Ephesus, which again would have been multiple churches. So these people who walked with Jesus and who were writing this, when they thought about the church, they weren't just thinking about the church particular. They were thinking about the church in a city and even the church universal. There's one church. Now, it's true there are particular issues in this church, and he'll write to, to address them as well, but it's quite significant when he's writing, he's writing to the church in the city. 
He's calling them collectively together, highlighting the singularity, the unity, uh, the church of God in Corinth, the collection, but addressed to, to one body. And there are some as well, when we think about going down Mason Montgomery, how many churches do you pass? It's, you know, it's soup du jour of the day, wherever you want to go, and what program do you like? And, and there are some differences there too, but isn't it interesting that the letter written here is to one church, the church in Cincinnati, for example. And so there's a distinctiveness, and yet there's a unity too. The, the church, it's not just Redeemer Church. And so when I look down the road at Hope Church, I'm thinking, that's, that's the bride of Christ also. And there may be some differences, but this letter has been written to these people, one church, so are we, and that more than that, but it's one church of the sanctified. And sanctified was a, a church that would have told these people that there's a consecrated gathering. It's been set apart. It's, it's different. It's unique. And these people have been called out, just like Paul was, the ecclesia, the called out ones, and set apart by God for his purposes. And because of that, the church that gathers that we have seen in the pages ahead is quite messy. I mean, the, the immorality within the church is shocking. Shocking enough to go on the headlines of any tabloid of the day. And yet when he talks to them, he doesn't say, I'm writing to the church of a bunch of messed up people who I'm embarrassed to be associated with. You disgust me. He's writing to the church of the sanctified. How is that even possible? Because as soon as he's done saying these things, he says, now let's roll up our sleeves and get to the issues that are embarrassing and that are sad and that might cause you shame, he even says later. How is that possible? How are they sanctified? Precious, valued. And, and perhaps we can unpack it a bit more by even stringing it out farther because he says, you're one church of the sanctified called to be saints. You are called to be the hagios in the Greek, the holy ones. The sanctified called to be saints. You're sanctified and called to be holy. And here's, here's the way I think that Paul begins to unpack this. His theology develops a lot as he writes more letters, and, and this is teased out. But he sees two things happening here. One is you are sanctified by virtue of your status and your position. That is, your status before God is set apart, righteous, right? Right before God. When, when, when God looks at you, even in the, the mess and the filth that is to come, what he sees is Christ, his son. The blood that was shed for you, purchased at a price, his son. And he looks at, at us, messy sinners, and sees Jesus. So when he writes that, it's, it's not just a fiction, it's a reality. The status you have before God, if you are in Christ is a holy one, set apart, the bride of Christ, his precious jewel. That's you. It really is. And at the same time, you are called to be saints. That is, you have to, all right, that's your status, that's your position, and now here's your role. Walk it out. Live it out. You're called to be these things, and we aim towards that. 
That's our goal. That's, that's who we are. But more than that, because we're the holy ones and we're called to be sanctified, it speaks about our relationship as well. When we don't walk in fellowship with God, by definition, we're out of fellowship with him and our relationship is affected. God the Father accepts us because of Christ. We're in relationship with him. What relationship isn't affected when we're not walking according to how we're supposed to be? Parents, you know you love your children. And if they do something that, that is, is injurious or harmful, there's a, there's a rift in that relationship. You don't cease loving them. But there's, there's some damage that's been done. And there's some work to reestablish it. And part of why I think Paul has this in mind, if you skip down to, to verse 9, is because he says, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. Koinonia. Some of you biblical scholars know that. This unity. You have been called, there's that word he uses again, into fellowship with his son. Part of your calling is teasing out, working on that relationship with, with Christ. You hear about people talking about religion versus relationship. Religion, just a bunch of rules. Relationship is a living, breathing. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. It's not just a bunch of, of dry, dusty rules that you're supposed to obey and follow. Those exist because that's, how you, that's what the relationship looks like. And so when he says here, you are sanctified and called to be holy, that's the image that Paul seems to want to have in mind that he unpacks in many years to come. I mean, that's a lot happening just right here. One church, sanctified, called to be holy. And it's no wonder that Paul spent days trying to unpack these things with people. There's a lot of... Of, of, of language here that has deep, rich meaning that we're to carry out. And we're, that's why we see that we have a high calling. Do you sense the gravity of the calling if you're somebody who's in Christ, the, the freedom to pursue it, but also the weightiness of it as well? Some people might call this positional righteousness. I'm right before God because of my position. But then we have relational righteousness as well. Like, I... That, that we work it out. Another theological term some of you are familiar with is justification. You've been made right by Christ because of your faith, but now you have sanctification. You walk it out. Those are all similar concepts being packed out here. So if you fail to live up to the standards that God has set that Paul is going to talk about, what do you do with that? How do you respond? If you have fellowship with God and you claim there's no sin in you, you're lying. You deceive yourself. What do you do? You take it to God. And Paul's going to say, look, grow up, people. Remember last week we said, he says, you are just like little infants. Stop thinking like a child. And people who are young, if they fail and they've been disciplined by a parent, usually there's some predictable responses. Depending on who you are, you might shut down. Stonewall. Maybe internalize it and feel shame and beat yourself up. Could be that you're somebody, when, when you have that happen, you get angry and mad. And it comes out either verbally or physically. I don't know. What, what's your default mode for when you've done something wrong and you're confronted with it as well? And Paul says, stop acting like a child. Part of what you do, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 
that your godly sorrow leads to repentance. Admit it. Be honest about it. That's the only pathway forward. Stuff, stuff needs to be dealt with, but don't hide it in the dark. Reveal it in the light. Let's deal with it. Let's be honest because there is forgiveness guaranteed by the blood of Christ. And you won't experience that on the relational level until you open up and talk about it. It's just not going to happen because you're going to harbor fellowship with the darkness. He says, stop being a little child. Be honest about it. And because that kind of worldly sorrow, he calls it, eventually it leads to death. It just, you're going to destroy yourself or destroy others. So don't do it. So when he says you're called to be saints, these are all the things that he has in mind. You see that's a high calling. It's a privileged calling. And we have also a faithful God because he has done so much on our behalf. And Paul finishes this first three verses by talking about one church of the sanctified called to be saints together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that you were written into the book of Corinthians? If you call on the name of Christ today, here you are. He's written to people who are, he says, together with everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You call on the name of Jesus today, bam, he's writing to you as well. He is unpacking a vision for the church unified and the church universal. Across all ages and all times, knitting together a people. And he wants us to see the, how unified the church is, not, not just in their particular place, but across the world and across the ages. Because again, when we start getting into the messiness, there's division. And he says, if you understand who you really are, and if that starts framing the way you look at somebody else, it ought to chase away some of these petty things that you think are so important. Get a bigger cosmic view of the church of God. Expanding our vision, not just Corinth, not just Cincinnati, but the saints through the ages across all continents. That's the greeting. And then, then he offers the thanks in verses 4 through 9. And in those verses, he shifts with his letter writing to say, hey, let me offer some thanks. That's the standard of the day. And in verse 4, what he starts off by doing is he gives thanks for them. He's giving genuine thanks for these people who are causing him a ton of headaches. If you look at 2 Corinthians, he has plans maybe to visit again. But he says, basically, the Lord's leading me elsewhere. And plus, I know it's going to be painful. We've had some painful visits before. You know, Paul is very unlike me. I avoid conflict. He doesn't. <laughs> he sees it. He calls it what he is. He seems to run right to it. That's the kind of guy he was. He says, I know if I show up, there's going to be some pain involved. And yet he still gives thanks for them. Genuine thanks. Although they are giving him genuine spiritual heartburn all the time. He sees himself as their spiritual father and their wandering children. And what parent doesn't worry about a wandering child who continues to make the same mistakes over and over again, and yet it's been made very clear that that gets you nowhere? That's how Paul is to these people. And yet he gives thanks for them. It seems to be quite genuine. I give thanks for you. 
And, and he goes on to talk a, a little bit more about it. He says, I give thanks for you. But he tells them kind of why. Because of the grace given to you in Christ. He does give thanks for them, but when he's, he's, he's doing it with a view of what Christ has done in them. This reminds me of some of you have heard before of the toast at my, my wedding that my best man gave. It was, it was such, such a great toast. It was, it was a humbling toast because he got up and he said, Hey, I am here to offer a toast today to an amazing man. This man is kind. This man is generous. This man is faithful. This man is the best possible friend anybody could imagine. I could go on and on about his character qualities, and he did for a little while as well, and he said, that man is Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> it said it's because Mark knows Jesus that many of those things are true of him as well. I wonder if these people felt like that. I give thanks to you. Great, because of what Christ has done in you. You're such a mess. Thank goodness that his grace is at work feels a little similar, and yet it's true God's grace is at work in them, and he gives thanks for that. Even with all the mess to come, he gives thanks because God's grace is at work in them. He wouldn't be writing the letter to them if it weren't at work in them. He has reason to give thanks. We always do. You know, it's interesting how oftentimes in the scriptures, thanks, overflowing with thankfulness, it's kind of the antidote to so many things. Even when you don't feel like it, focusing on gratitude chases away so many of the things that we're trying to fight against. Whatever it might be. I mean, I know some of you have probably read Ann Voskamp's A Thousand Gifts, where she just writes about saying thanks and kind of cultivates a sense of gratitude. So when you're looking at the things around you, the default mode, again, is to what can I give thanks for instead of what I can complain about. And what you spend your time and energy on shifts and shapes your soul. And Paul here starts by giving thanks, and he's enamored with the grace of Christ. All throughout this, I mean, Christ is mentioned multiple times, and his work in these people is what Paul wants to celebrate. But it is in those people. It's not like separated, you know, the dualism of the day, a very Hellenistic culture, flesh, bad, spirit, good, he destroys. And he says they're, they're both made by God. And so, yeah, he's at work in you, but his grace is, is at work as well. And in verse 5, he mentions to them that in Christ they have been enriched. You know, this society, as we mentioned, was a very, very wealthy society. There were lots of business people. We talked about where they were situated and, and the booming economy of the day. And he's using terms they would understand to say, in Christ, you're wealthy. I mean, these people, they may have some stores and, and clothes that look great, and they got all the bling. But if we could look at the spiritual, spiritual gifts you've been given, you're rich. Your bank account is, is flush with cash. And what you're rich in is spiritual gifts. And he'll talk about using those gifts well. But he says, you've got it. God has given it to you. And those are for the common good of this one church, as he'll say in chapters 12 through 14. And he wants to remind them, don't let those gifts remain dormant. Don't use those resources in a wrong manner. The church is amazing. It really is, and you're part of it. If you're in Christ, 
And yet there's always this tension, I don't know if you've felt it, that we feel like our gifts are not fully utilized. Or maybe we don't understand them. Or we doubt if they even exist, perhaps. Because we live in a sin-torn world that distorts and twists even the best of things. And Paul writes with that in mind. So there's this tension again in Paul's writings about, hey, look, there are these gifts you've been given and you've been made wealthy and enriched. But we also recognize that there's something coming. There's going to be kind of, there's always going to be a longing for more until Jesus arrives. Until that day when he comes back and ties up all the loose ends. And you see that tension here. Look at verse 7. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He's given you what you need, but there's also something yet to come. We know that tension. Hope, progress, but a longing for resolution. And that's why he ends in chapter 15 with the resurrection of Christ as well. 1 Corinthians then is rooted squarely in the now, in history as it is unfolding, but also in the what is to come. What theologians call eschatology. The end. The last things. And Paul has a view that always keeps the end in mind. And he does that because it sustains him in trial. Paul experienced a lot of difficulty. He talks about that in his letters. And the end sustains him through those difficulties. I I know what's coming. It motivates him in the mundane, in the very simple things of life. Looking toward the end motivates him. Even in the simple things of life, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. It gives him hope to press on and to anticipate better days, the best days ahead. But at the end of the day, who's ensuring that that comes? Paul? No. He points them to a faithful God who is their anchor for this high calling. In verses 8 and 9, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It it makes me think of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Even even though, you know, you go to the website and it says, you know, what does it say if it comes up and it's not under construction? I'm going there. And we know that's kind of a picture of who we are in many respects under construction www.markchampagne.com, under construction, in many respects as well. Who's going to see that construction to the end? You know, who's going to make it about? New Costco going up, coming soon. New UDF down the road, coming soon. Who's going to see that to the end? Who's going to make sure that it actually happens? It doesn't sit there languishing in court law forever. I don't know, but I know from my faith I know what, what the end of that is. Christ the first fruits guarantees. He will see you to the end. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the Lord day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he is faithful. God is faithful. Faithful God. High calling. And those two need to be put together. If you feel the weight of the calling that you've been given, and you're, you're never going to quite measure up to it, where do you go with that? To the faithful God. He's, he's made a way for you. He, he's going to keep you strong to the end. He's the one you run to when you feel like you're falling apart. And there's a lot of people, though, who feel like they have a call, high calling, but not with that faithful God. And there are some people who have a faithful God that ought to inspire them to live out their high calling. 
It could be perhaps today for you, you're taking this faithful God kind of for granted. It isn't driving you to think of yourself when you get out to your job or go to school or go out for a run of the faithful God whom you're serving, who gave you those legs on which to run, who gave you the mind, the capacity to do whatever it is you happen to be doing. That comes from a faithful God who's given you every single gift. Faithful God, high calling. It could be today, maybe for you, you need to think more about as Paul draws us to the faithful God who's here for you. Or maybe you're high calling. Perhaps it's grown dull and you're apathetic. There's, there's no, that's, that's not understanding your calling. You're a sanctified, holy church of God that has been bought by the blood of Christ, the perfect son who was sacrificed on your behalf. Yeah, not just universally, but personally. And he has called you to this exact place where you are, this exact moment with everything around you, so you can live out the life that he's planned from the beginning of time. Now, if that doesn't in some way inspire you, it's because my intonation has not been good enough. <laughs> you know, it, this is huge. And so he says, live out this calling, both the status and the role, the position and the relationship. And so when he writes this letter, he's got all of that in mind. He's going to begin to roll up his sleeves and say, okay, with that as a backdrop, now let's start talking about the problems, particular to this, this church he's writing to, which end up being universal problems because he's writing to people who are all under construction. And the proof positive that we aren't going to be under construction forever is the resurrection of Christ. That's why he ends there. That's why he is strong to the end. Because he was faithful. We sang about it. He rose from the dead. So it's not how great you live out your calling. It's the faithful God that you're trusting in that matters the most. And that's where Paul starts. And I think he draws us back there. He's in love with what we call the gospel. Always drawing us back to the grace of God expressed in the person of Christ, and applied by his Holy Spirit so that we can live our lives, and no matter whether we eat or drink, we can do it all for the glory of God. And that's where he's going to get us in this book as well. Father, I pray then that we would respond accordingly. How might this shape us in the week ahead? Faithful God, high calling. Uh, perhaps for some of us, I've been thinking about this a lot too. When life just unfolds before us, even today, we need to think, I've got a faithful God. I've got a faithful God. And some of us too might need to say, what did, I need to live out this high calling. There are choices before me, always before me. What is the, the choice of the high calling that's been given? Because there are people who are going to say, oh, you identify with Christ. And that's what a Christian looks like. The great news of the gospel is that even in the midst of our failures, we have a faithful God who still forgives us. And the easy but hard path, it seems, is to admit that and to come openly and honestly before you and say, I failed again. And this faithful God says, my son is sufficient. My grace is sufficient in your weakness 
Let's reestablish that relationship. And now let's go live out this high calling. That's what Paul is encouraging this Corinthians to do and the Church of Cincinnati as well today. And especially this particular expression of it, Redeemer. Father, would you see fit then to remind us again of your faithful God that we serve and the high calling you've given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.